Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. My guests come from all walks of life and are people who get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is where they become curious, then enter the rabbit hole into discovery, some through scholarly research, others through pop culture documentaries and other podcasts. We look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to like and subscribe. It really does help to spread the word. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us at armchairhistorians.com. Armchair Historians is an independent podcast. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron through Patreon or buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians. Anne-Marie here. Today, you get to hear part two of my interview with Mudlark, Anna Borzello, about her years foraging along the foreshore for remnants of the lives of everyday people, breadcrumbs that lead to snapshots of the past, bringing into sharper focus the commonplace, for the times, routines of ordinary people. Anna is a crafty historian, able to spin an engaging narrative around each artifact she finds. You know, one of the things you've talked about, which I think is the thing, it's that tangibility of touching the past. And who was the last person that held that item in their hand and it fell away from them? And this is the first time it's like, it's almost like being in a time machine, right? Like to be able to touch that history and imagine it. And you have a very good imagination, the way that you've drawn out some of, you know, the ideas about the pins, for example, that was amazing. You know, it just it does seem like it takes a special, not a special, but a certain kind of person to appreciate that. So like, I have this great nephew, Finley, who is nine years old, and he loves the old things. And I'm like, thank you, God, for one child out of all of the, you know, uh, great nieces and nephews that I have that he is obsessed. And my daughter, her eyes glaze over when I start talking about this stuff. So I'm getting to something. I'm not sure what it is. But are any of your kids interested in this? So my children, when I started mudlocking, were really young. And so at the beginning, I could bribe, I had, because I'm a single parent, I couldn't leave them at home. I had to bring them with me. So I bribed them. And they'd do it for a donut when they were like eight. You know, that was really (laughs) easy. I could get away with a lot. Then it went up to sort of pizzas, then Lego box sets. That expensive. (laughs) I actually had to cash pay them to come with me. And now we're at this time where they can actually stay at home. And also they have friends and their friends come round. And if they, a lot of their friends love my mudlarking objects and want to know more about them. And often I can entice my children to come out with me if their friends come along too. But I think there's, there are different ways to appreciate mudlarking objects. You know, I appreciate 
the way they make me connect with the past. I know that other people who appreciate them because of the way they look or how they're made, you know, who appreciate the, the, the methods of production of pottery over time, for example. So there are different ways of connecting with these objects that you find mudlarking. There's another way that I connect, which, which I always find peculiar, but it really brings things alive for me, which is whenever I pick up smashed pottery, I, I imagine... I imagine someone's throwing it against a wall in a shouting match. And for some reason, it makes me think about anger, people in the past having emotions. Or you find rings, for example, that have been lost, or cufflinks. Cufflinks are always falling out of gentlemen's sleeves in the 18th century. And every time I find a cufflink, I hear them swearing when they get home. Damn, cufflink has gone again. <laughs> and I, I don't know why, but there's something about those petty everyday emotions, much more than the sort of grand emotions of battle that really make me connect. And that is something that mudlarking has brought for me. I, I, I actually hear, the feel the irritation in my own body. And also, I think it's interesting to think about the traces that we're leaving behind and what the, the modern day rubbish says about us, you know, how will other people read us and read our history? So, for example, on the foreshore, there's a lot of plastic, you know, and I often think there's a lot of Tampax applicators, you know, tampon applicators, which are obviously really unpleasant. But at the same time, I'm really aware that if I found one of those in 200 years' time, I think it was the most fascinating thing on <laughs> earth. Oh, my goodness me. You know, the, this is what they did in the 21st century. You know, I can't believe it. So I find that I try to I'm trying to approach the world in that way to make the rubbish seem less disgusting. And I always pick up children's plastic toys as well. There's a particular spot where they always wash up. And there's something about those toys and how they connect with the little toys that I found from the past, the little tiny children's plate made out of pewter, for example. These little toys that make you realize that there were children who were loved by their mothers who were given little toys to play with and they were there in the past and they're there now that we have where we have we we have, there's a continuity of feeling and emotion between us all yeah that's amazing so i know that you're very interested in me finding a, a objects that will tell a particular story and connect to particular people now a lot of the objects i find are older. So if you get to Victorian times, they're, they're more likely to be inscribed with someone's name or in the 20th, you know, early 20th century, like a dog tag, for example, much easier to trace. A lot of these older objects are harder to connect to individuals, except for the traders tokens that I've mentioned before, which will give the name of a shop and a shopkeeper. And through that, you can often investigate their whole life. I mean, I've tried to investigate really modern objects and got nowhere. I found this elite watch recently that had only been lost about six years ago and tried to, I wanted to find out why it was in the Thames. You know, it was a story of how it ended up there. You know, how do things end up in the water? I imagined it was something nefarious. I got nowhere at all, despite ringing absolutely everybody and writing to the watch manufacturer because it was a limited, a limited edition watch. But I can understand the, there is something you know, really exciting about being able to attach an object to a person and to follow it on its journey. But when they're just anonymous objects, they still have this life of their own, as I've described. So I've also seen you in videos where you go to bottle dumps. 
So you don't just you don't just mudlark. Bottle digging is really well. Bottle digging is quite interesting, just because the whole notion of there being this massive population explosion and disposable goods in the nineteenth century, and people having to decide, you know, how do we get rid of all this waste? And particularly in London, with all these people, you know, having to ship the waste elsewhere. And often the waste went to uh, brickmakers because most of it was made out of, out of ash. And so the brickmakers then took on the job of getting rid of the rubbish so that they could use the ash to make the bricks. And you'll often find old kind of bottle dumps near old brickworks. So there is something exciting about finding some of these bottles. And there is something always exciting about unearthing treasure. For me personally, I love being near water. And there's something about the jumbled upness of the Thames where Roman artifacts can exist next to artifacts that were lost 1,500 years later that I find really exciting in, in a way that the dump doesn't quite move me. I mean, it's lovely to be out with friends looking for these objects, but the earth doesn't excite me as much as the water. However, I do like looking for sea glass because, I mean, this seems to be such a niche interest. Once you get the sea glass and you know the sea glass has come from a nearby bottle making factory that was up in the late Victorian times, you can then spend quite some time trying to connect the little tiny bits of coloured glass to a particular type of bottle. You go, oh, yes, this was a poison bottle. I mean, sometimes I think I can't believe I'm doing this. But there's a certain pleasure to be had in that, just that matching of this little object to these bottles. But yes, I, I find the notion of all this excess trash generated by all these Londoners at this time of industrial expansion quite interesting. I gather up things wherever I go. Like I'm apparently a natural mudlarker because I'm always looking in the dirt and finding things. I live in a uh, National Historic Landmark District in Colorado. And I mean, our history here goes back to, you know, the 1850s. And so I'm always picking up like broken bits of glass and pottery. And I've always admired, like when I watch Nicola White's YouTube videos, how she has all her things around her. And what you just showed me, like I'm obsessed with your shelf that you were showing me. So this past Christmas, uh, my boyfriend and I, we have this old family curio cabinet and we moved it upstairs and I finally have my shelf that I have all those little things that I find in it and it just it's a weird thing it makes me feel complete when people come into my house they look at it and I've always said about my podcast is that you know I do believe that history is the touchstone to many a meaningful conversation and that's why, like, mudlarks, I love talking to mudlarks because you intuitively get that. And there's so much to learn and to talk about. It is a rabbit hole of history that, like you said, you bring something home and it's there's this item and you learn about it. And then you end up learning about a bunch of other things that might not have to do with that item, you know, like uh, false teeth from 200 years ago. I get why you do what you do. Um, and I love it. And I love that you were so willing to share it with my audience. Thank you. Is there any uh, questions that I didn't ask you that you want to talk about? There are other 
categories of objects that I just find fascinating because of what they've told me about the past. For example, and I'm showing you here on my on my screen actually, but unfortunately, listeners, you can't see it. It's a little tiny tin glaze pot from the 17th century. Very small, and I found it on a very low tide. And what it is, is an apothecary pot. So it's a little jar that was used by basically chemists in the late 17th century to give treatments to people of the middling class. So if you were poor, you couldn't afford this sort of treatment. You went to someone called a cunning man or woman. That's essentially a, a traditional healer or witch doctor. You go for a spell. So a real a treatment from an apothecary would have been put in this pot. And I was really fascinated. I thought, I'll look in, and find out what apothecaries did. And I, and I was very, in particular, interested by their ingredients. And what I discovered was they had these most marvelous ingredients. They had things like sparrow's brain and lion fat. And then there was a whole craze for a very long time for something called mamiya, which is actually desiccated mummy as in egyptian mummy and they it apparently had all these incredible properties it could cure tuberculosis <laughs> everybody wanted it and i find that really interesting because it made me realize that people in that era were quite cosmopolitan you know you think of people in the past as sort of huddling around not having a notion of the outside world but actually they knew about egyptian mummies they knew that they existed. They knew that they had these magical powers that could transform your health. And at about the time that this pot was made, which is, uh, as I said, late 1600s, uh, that apparently Mamiya had fallen into disrepute because some people were uh, actually uh, desiccating body, other sorts of bodies and passing it off as Egyptian mummies. And so in the end, uh, people thought that Mamiya, you know, because it was too risky to take because it wasn't a real object, eventually pharmacists, uh, apothecaries stopped using it. But I just felt that was just extraordinary that from that little object, you got a view of the kind of objects that were coming into people's lives and this sort of extraordinary cosmopolitan worldview that they might have had. That is amazing. That's a lovely little pot, too. It is a lovely little pot too. I mean, there's lots, all the objects are like that. They all spark these sort of extraordinary stories. Even something very humble, like there's these little green tops. Um, it looks like a little kind of green bit of pottery. It would fit on the end of my thumb. It's got like a little nipple on top. What's that you think when you find it for the first time? What it actually is, is a top of a Tudor money box. And they were used in the theatres on the south bank of the river at the end of the 1500s and the beginning of the 1600s to collect money for all those shows, like Shakespeare's Globe. You know, it could have been a pot from a Shakespeare play and people would go in and they'd put their penny into the slot of this box. And at the end of the day, the pot was smashed and then the money was pocketed by the, by the box office. And I think that's, that's why there's so many of them on the foreshore. But you think, my goodness me. And then through that, you realise that actually for a long time, all the sinful occupations were on the south bank of the river. People had to cross the river to get there. You know, sin was in a specially confined area. And I found that quite interesting because when I used to live in Nigeria, I remember going to the north once and there was a sort of sinful uh, Christian area, actually. And that was also cordoned off from the rest of the Sharia-run part of the city. So I found it just amazing sort of parallel to think that there was this cordoned off world 400 years ago in London. 
I love where you you bring the conversation and I love your enthusiasm and I'm hearing it in sound bites. So I'm really excited about that. I don't know. I'm jealous because you get to live that life. Like if I had a life to live, it would be being obsessed with the tide and going to the foreshore. I'm coming in May. So I'm coming in May at the end of May, the beginning of June. And I I don't get to really think about, well, when's the best time of year to come? When's the tide going to be this or that or the other? And um, I imagine over time, you just intuitively get a sense of when the best times to go. Are there different places to go that you feel are better at certain times to find things? Or how do you decide where you're going to go on the foreshore? Well, now a lot of it's to do with because there's more people going on the foreshore and I prefer it when there's less people. Mm -hmm. I tend where I go often is often directed by how popular I think a particular site might be at that time of day. That determines where I go. And then there's spots that I think are good to look at when the tide is very low because I think there might be areas in the exposed mud, the rarely exposed mud. And there are other areas when I know that you might find stuff sort of up the back wall, you know, thrown up um, amongst the shingle. So that's sort of that sort of uh, are the considerations that I make when I decide where to go. And also sometimes it's just random. You think, ah, maybe I'll go to Ikea and stop off on the foreshore on the way. It's on the way. Yeah, it's on that route. So you asked me, what do I do for a living? Obviously, mudlarking is your hobby or passion. Do you have a vocation that you do aside from mudlarking? And how do you fit all that together? No, I did for a very long time. So I was a journalist for a long time. I was, a, a, as I mentioned, I was a foreign correspondent in Africa for a very long time, which was a really wonderful job. But for most of the time when I'm not mudlarking, I am a full-time parent at the moment. Hopefully I'll go back to journalism one day because I very much love it. Interesting. What do you do with your objects when you bring them home? I clean them, which is a really tedious and filthy process. It really annoys the children. They say, please don't do it in the kitchen sink. Please don't do it in the kitchen. (laughs) They beg me repeatedly. It's really hard not to do it in the kitchen because it's so convenient. I dump stuff in the garden and eventually get around to cleaning it. And then I sort it. And the things that I decide to keep and not return to the foreshore, when I renovated my kitchen, I actually renovated the whole kitchen around shelves, which I had specially built just so I could display my finds. And so I sort those objects onto those shelves. And I know that other mudlarks have other ways of, of, of displaying their objects at home. The pull-out drawers from the old Victorian cabinets are, are very popular some people, unfortunately, unfortunately for them, they come to my house and they're terribly jealous I've got my finds out because their partners won't allow them to have their objects on display because I think they just think this is honestly, why would I want a load of old bottles from a rubbish dump in my kitchen is what I think they feel. And when they come to my house, I've seen a couple of people who look kind of so woeful when they look at my shelves. If only I could have my stuff out too, but they're not allowed to by their partner. So I think all of us have different ways of sorting and keeping our finds. And some people are very, very selective. They like to keep it terribly small. And you like they like to keep only the most perfect things. And other people like to have this sort of expansive collection that they feel better reflects the foreshore. So I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Okay, I was going to ask you. So do you have uh, displays throughout your house or just in your kitchen? 
I only have that display. I'm trying to be somewhat selective. I have fines scattered around the house, but my, my main display is in my kitchen. And I do judge people when they come in. If someone comes in and they don't notice my display, I think, why didn't you notice my display? <laughs> it used to be exactly the same. I used to feel that way about books. If people came into my house, because I used to have many more books than I do now, and they didn't look at my books, I'd think, but why aren't you looking at my books? Why don't you want to know what I've got to read? And so, yeah, I can be a little bit judgmental like that. So um, I get thrilled when the children bring their friends around and the friends that gravitate towards my towards my finds always get a, a extra points. They're keepers for friends. They're keepers, definitely. <laughs> I love that. Well, that's like my nephew, Finley, who, like I said, he's nine years old and he is obsessed by his collections of coins and you know, toys that he's found uh, metal detecting and just he's exactly how you described yourself. That's exactly what he does. He he collects them and then he organizes them and then he pulls them out when people come to visit and he likes to talk about his things and kindred spirits. I totally get it. So over the years, you've amassed this collection and not only that, you've amassed this knowledge of these items and these histories. And then with your imagination, you've taken it to another place, which I really connect with. So what do you do uh, aside from collecting? How do you share this knowledge and this history with other people? So there's a really big community of mudlarks on Instagram. And it's a really big and very supportive community. So people tend to post and then add to each other's knowledge and share. And that's been really interesting also on Twitter and Facebook. But Instagram has been the, been the main focus. So that, that's one, one way that I share what I find. But also in the last three years, there have been these wonderful exhibitions by Mudlarks in central London during the Thames Festival. So the first one was in 2019. And then there was another one. It skipped a year because of uh, lockdown. There was one in 2021 and 2022. And the last one was brilliant. We had an exhibition of our finds in the Guildhall in London, St. Paul's Cathedral, the National Maritime Museum. And it's organized by Jason Sandy, the last one who you had on your podcast. So I've exhibited at all of those. And my friend, who is a, a lecturer in com computational arts, designed me this rather magical machine. It's called a magical mudlarking machine, where you can virtually mudlark. You put your hand inside and it appears as if you're holding this object in your hand. And it's a way of uh, people to connect with the object. And after they put their hand in, they often want to know more about it. And then that's a way of entering into my display. And I've particularly, I've noticed that children love it Interestingly, neurodivergent children really, really love it. And actually, a teacher from a specialist school for autistic children asked me and my friend to take our magical mudlarking machine along to his school and try it out on the kids there. And they were really, really keen. It was fascinating. And I said to the kids afterwards, how did you find that? And they said, well, I can't speak for the neurotypical people, but for us, it was absolutely wonderful, which I thought was brilliant. And I think there's something about the immediacy of this, of these objects and also handling the objects because you, you pass them around amongst the students. And it's been a way for them to connect with history in a really manageable portion. It's not 
abstract. It's not like history was when I was at school when it was just this remote thing. It's something that comes up very close. And I've been to a few schools now and it's always been extremely well received and I hope to do more of it because there's something so exciting about children's faces when they get interested and they want to know more and they find the stories entertaining. And if you throw in a bit of poo, which is quite easy when you're talking about the Thames, you always get them engaged. So I always try and throw in a little bit of poo story, anything with a little bit, something disgusting, something a little bit gruesome, something, you know, something that makes them go, oh, that's so revolting, you know, lice or poo or something yucky. Is there a place we can go and look at your, like a video of your mudlark machine? Oh, I think that I, it probably if you scroll back through Instagram, there is one. I think it would have been last year sometime in 2021. I think there's a video on there. Okay. Maybe I'll try and redo another one at some point. All right. I'm writing this down because I link out. Why do you think that so many people have become interested in mudlarking? I think one really boring reason is that it was has been presented as an opportunity in the past few years. So I think there's a whole generation of people who stumbled upon mudlarking themselves. And then from about 2018, there have been a couple of books produced, and that's generated quite a lot of publicity and news articles and TV programs. So I think then people realised that it was something that you could do And that gave permission to do it as well. And that's encouraged very many more people to go down to the foreshore. It seems hard to imagine, but actually, previously, even when I started mudlarking, people didn't really realise you could go down to the foreshore. If you went to the South Bank, there would be nobody down on the river at all. It was completely empty. And I remember at the beginning when I'd open the gate, creak open, and I'd walk down the steps, people would stop and stare. And they'd shout, what are you doing down there? What what are you doing? And now it's become so popular that they're shouting, what have you found? Because everybody knows about mudlarking. I mean, literally when I started, nobody knew. And that's not very long ago. So I think that's the kind of boring reason why it's become popular. But the reason why it, it sees people's imagination is because it's a magical thing. We're in the middle of a huge international city. And yet right in the heart of that city, scattered on the ground, are all these incredible relics from the past that tell you stories about the past and which anybody can access. It's like crazy. It's like a museum's exploded in the middle of London and someone's letting you go low down and sort of loot it. <laughs> I mean, I don't loot is probably the wrong word because, of course, you're recording all your finds and you're not stealing it. You're not profiting from it. But it is that kind of heady feeling. I can't believe this stuff's here and I can pick it up. And I think that's why. But also the actual act of mudlarking is quite meditative. I mean, that's why I really loved it at the beginning. You're down there by yourself, by the water. There's the sound of the water in the middle of the city. They're the sound of gulls. I really have a little bit of a thing about seagulls. I really love them. I spend a lot of time taking photographs of them. And you're down there in this magical, quiet space, just searching. And you never know what the lucky dip of the foreshore is going to throw up. So this this wonderful sort of random quality, you'll never know what you get. And then as more people have joined, there's been more of a community evolving. And actually, people come from all sorts of different walks of life. And yet we have a common interest. And I have, even someone as antisocial as myself, 
has made many friends. I'm surprised how many friends I've made whose company I enjoy. We just went to a muddlarking social pub meet recently and all sat together and chatted about our shared interests. It's a really brilliant pastime based on this magical premise that treasure lies for all in the heart of the city. It's interesting because there's people that I know from the UK that I've said mudlarking and they don't know what it is, or even from London. And then I get to tell them, which I always appreciate that launch into telling what my knowledge is about, you know, the Thames and the tidal river and all those things. And the thing I really like about how it appears anyways, is that that community there isn't a sense of competition. There's just a sense of passion, a mutual passion and a desire to learn more through other people's experiences. And obviously it's an opportunity to talk about what, what we've learned. Right. And it just, I love that energy. And I think that's part of the dynamic that makes it so compelling when I go to YouTube or Instagram and participate in the groups, it's that sense of that shared interest in connecting to the past. And I, I love that. I just, it's basic. I love it. And I love that you are so passionate, like I said already, and that you, the way you've shared your knowledge and your experiences. I really appreciate yeah. that. Oh, thank you. It's been very enjoyable talking to you. Anna Borzello, thank you so much for being here. I have really enjoyed talking to you and seeing your collections. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for appreciating my collection. That's very important. It was lovely to talk to you and to meet you. There you have it. Anna Borzello, Mudlark and Crafty Historian. To find out more about mudlarking and Anna, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week. Armchair Historians is produced by Belgian Rabbit Productions, hosted by Anne-Marie Cannon. Music this week is Strings by Gold Tiger. Sound editing and design by Anne-Marie Cannon. 